you know, with ButcherBox um, this year, so we celebrated our five-year birthday and we've built this, you know, very large company uh, with no outside capital and really are at the intersection of a lot of trends, um, whether it's, hey, I think animals should be raised better, farmers should be paid more, the environment is in trouble. Um, how do we use, how do we change the way that meat is raised to, um, to, to help that? Um, that's really what we're here to do. Like that is a long-term goal. Zach here, that was the voice of Mike Salguero, the founder and CEO of ButcherBox, formerly the founder of Custom Made. Uh, Mike's up to some amazing things at ButcherBox recently, uh, got the company set up as, with B Corp certification, just a very mindful leader, very heart-driven leader. And I think I'll just let the conversation do the talking. If, if folks wanna get in touch with me, signal's always on. Appreciate guest recommendations, feedback, you name it. Have a wonderful day, everyone. Cheers. Silicon Valley Bank is a proud sponsor of Boston Speaks Up. For more than 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. SVB provides targeted financial services and expertise through its offices at 53 State Street in downtown Boston and in Newton and innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, SVB helps address the unique needs of Boston's innovators. Learn more at svb.com. Zach Servideo here from Boston Speaks Up, and I'm here with ButcherBox founder and CEO, Mike Salguero. Hey, Mike, how's it going? Hey, doing well. How you doing? Doing well, man, doing well. We're still like, still in this pandemic. I know we're, we're able to get out and about a little bit, but it sounds like we're both um, in corners of our homes with doors shut, um, trying to avoid... Um, outside noises. But if they come in, I think listeners understand at this point that everyone's just trying to figure it out one, one hour at a time, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, thanks, thanks, thanks a lot for being on today. Um, it was really, it's been really interesting kind of digging in. I've been doing some research on work up to a butcher box and looking forward to sort of unpacking that later on in the podcast. Um, just for, for folks that are listening that may not know ButcherBox, which is your current startup, you've had a couple, um, also custom made. I was curious if you could just kind of give a top line sort of you know, overview, or call it an elevator pitch of just what what you guys are up to at ButcherBox. Yeah, sure. So uh, ButcherBox were six years old, and uh, I actually started the business as a hobby, which I'm sure we'll get into. Uh, and it wanted to be something different. Um, but what we do is we ship claims based meat in the mail. Um, so ButcherBox was born out of a need of mine, which was I was trying to clean up my diet, my wife's diet by eating grass-fed beef, and we couldn't find it. Went to the local grocery store, couldn't find it, or could only find ground beef, and um, just got obsessed with this idea of like, how would I have grass-fed beef and how would I uh, provide that to consumers? And as we got started, we realized that the problems inherent in grass-fed beef are also inherent in virtually all species. So uh, pork and chicken and uh, wild-caught seafood and lamb. Um, so we just built out a, a program, ButcherBox.com, that um, really we're competing against the butcher. Um, we believe in meat raised a different way. 
And uh, we're providing that to people who can trust that our brand is going to get the highest quality, best value stuff delivered to your door on a monthly basis. Great. How long have you been at it? Uh, so um, my official first day of work was the Monday after Memorial Day, 2015. So we're just about six years in. And then we launched via Kickstarter that September. So uh, about to celebrate our sixth year. Um, yeah, so nice. quite a while. Um, nice. Before, before that, I ran a different company called custommade.com, which I did for seven years. So I've been uh, running um, a company and dealing with all of that complexity for about 13 years straight. I took a weekend off before starting ButcherBox in between custom-made and ButcherBox. As, as someone who recently untangled from and started his own business and, and took about a day off, um, I can relate. Um, before we go, I want to go back in time a bit, get, get a bit of your backstory, but I want to double click on the Kickstarter for ButcherBox and then kind of, and, and also sort of maybe relate that to custom made, like, you know, li- lightly share what custom made was and how you sort of built that business and how you raised capital against that business. And then, you know, I'm curious, like, what you were thinking from a, you know, capital raising standpoint um, when you were uh, pulling together the resources for ButcherBox? Yeah, sure. So um, the quick story on Custom Made uh, started the company with my best friend Seth in 2008, and um, we actually had to purchase the website CustomMade.com from this woodworker um, who who started it in 1996. And so the purchase price was $140,000, which Seth and I didn't have. So we put down a $5,000 deposit, and then we ran around town with a logo on a cell phone trying to raise money against this idea that we were going to buy the website, rehab it, um, add more woodworkers, uh, allow woodworkers to create their own profiles, um, and then expand from just woodworking into other areas that are custom. Um, The website that was built in 1996 was... Like he was the webmaster, um, so people would have to email him photos and he'd put them up. Um, and uh, you'd talk to these woodworkers and they're like, I get all my business from that website and I pay $35 a year. So the, the investment thesis was more of like a real estate play. It was like buy, rehab, flip. Um, right. So we raised money and then, uh, so we raised about 500,000 from friends and family. And then a year later, we raised another million. And then uh, a year after that, we raised 2 million from, uh, that was our first venture capital for it. So we raised from uh, First Round Capital, um, Atlas, which is now Accomplice, uh, and Google Ventures. And, you know, what happened at that moment is, um, at least the way I remember it, is uh, we started having people come into our company. You know, Google has like, hey, we'll send an engineer in. We'll send people in to see what you're doing. And when they uh, when they kind of looked in at what we were doing, they were like, you guys, you, you need some more professional management around here. This isn't working. Um, and so over the course of the next two years, uh, you know, we're, while we're struggling to find product market fit, we really changed over the team quite dramatically. So brought in people to run engineering, to run product, to run marketing, to uh, operations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Kind of brought in those people who had who had done it before. Right. And ultimately, we got to a point where um, it wasn't working. 
I wasn't happy. Um, and we had to uh, essentially pivot the company. My co-founder still runs it. They're doing a great job. They just do custom jewelry. Um, but it was time for me and many others to leave. Um, and so can we double click on that for a moment? I just have a fault. So when you went into the engagement, when you signed like the, when you signed your, you know, contract with Google ventures in particular, like did they, did, did you know they were going to kind of come in into like a management consulting role or was that a surprise? Um, it it was welcomed. I mean, it was like, we didn't know what we were doing. We had no idea. We'd never run a tech company before. It was like, yeah, let's, you know. And what, in retrospect, a few things in retrospect. So one, um, I find that most people, but most entrepreneurs on the inside are incredibly insecure. Um, And so when somebody like Google comes in your company, and it wasn't just them, there were lots of other people looking in at what we're doing. But when someone like Google comes in your company and says, these aren't the right people, you're like, okay, clearly I was wrong. They're not the right people. Right. Um, and, you know, that kind of feeds into because they're a top tier company, um, it feeds into the insecurity. Like, are you really able to say, no, that's the right person? Right. It fires yeah. some of the doubt that anyone naturally would have in the vulnerable sure. position of creating something for the first time. Especially if you have no idea what you're doing when it comes yeah. to like online. Right? Sure. So um, I heard this analogy once and I think it works really well. Like when you start a company, it's basically like people hacking through the jungle with machetes. And so the only thing that matters is like, how, how long are you willing to swing the machete? Are you willing to like, you know, you just need to get people who are really passionate, who will work long hours and who just don't care. They'll make it work. We have to find a road. All that matters is like, find a road, find a road. And when you find that road and you're walking on the road and you see a bus, um, my first company, the moment we saw the bus, and it was like, all right, let's get on the bus. I was like, uh, you guys don't really know how to drive, do you? <laughs> and, I, and I left them all in the jungle, all of them. And I, I mean, I've, I've written about this. I've spoken about this. Like, it was a traumatic experience because what happened was all of, I'm a, I'm a heart leader. I lead like with my heart. I'm good friends with people. Like all of the people who helped me to get to the place where we were able to attract top tier venture capital Ultimately, I had to sit across the table from them and say, you're no longer welcome here. Right. And that that had a pretty profound impact on me and how like, you know, how I took the the custom-made experience. Jeez. That was amazing. I'd be be in therapy after that. I'd be like, oh my God. Because like it's, by the way, I just want to double click on, and I I love that you are a heart leader. Um, And and I think that, that the heart leaders are, you know, maybe historically, I think I've been a bit of the exception. I hope become more of the norm. I think as things are, it seems like there's a bit of a shift um, where the people, you know, power of the people, people are demanding, I think, more heart leaders and more work lifestyle balances and like more, um, just more like sort of like impassioned leaders that, you know, genuinely care about their, you know, you know, individuals, and and it's not all about like the macro economic goals of the company. And so I think that that's, you know, I, I imagine that the lessons that you took away from being a heart leader, custom made, like it didn't it didn't compel you not to be a heart leader moving forward. But what I'm interested in is learning like how you've become a more, you know, I don't know if it's more efficient or just a, an improved 
heart leader so that you can work with you know the t- similar types of people that have helped you build ButcherBox. Have you don't have to sit across the table from them and say, "Hey, like you, you've maybe been able to put structures and systems in place to help those f- folks that follow the heart leaders, um, you know, help them succeed and thrive, and and ultimately yeah. be a continued play, continued you know, evolving roles for you know the new code that you've now built." When I started, one of the thing when I started ButcherBox. So first of all, when I started ButcherBox, it was supposed to be a hobby. I mean, the first article that came out about us was about how I left custom made and started ButcherBox. And if we had a thousand subscribers, it would be quote unquote, a sexy business. Like I wasn't looking for much. Right. Um, I was actually looking for these, these, um, you know, Tim Ferriss four hour work week type businesses where, you know, if you made a $20 profit on every box that you sent out and you sent out a thousand a month, you got $20,000. If you do a little bit of engineering, a little bit of customer service, you're like, good. That was that was my plan. Very modest, and mm-hmm. I um, really didn't want to raise money because I felt like ultimately um, the money um, changed the culture, and I was not ready to raise venture capital. I didn't want to raise venture capital. Right. And then as things started working, so we did a Kickstarter campaign. Uh, we went out. We we I knew that we could game Kickstarter because it was um, in 2015. There was like this moment where we thought we could get like big upside with with spending very little. So yeah. we spent less than ten thousand dollars to put together the whole the whole thing. That's all the money that we've ever put into this thing. And what'd you raise um, on Kickstarter? Yeah, two hundred fifteen thousand. That's great. Yeah. Um, in pre-sales, right? So yeah. those are people, right. we had like a thousand boxes. Those are commi- pre-commitments. Yeah. Yep. 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 I mean, um, yeah, ButcherBox is an ideal business for, for Kickstarter and 2015 was a great time for it. Yep. Yeah. It's a, so timing also helped here, but also you had the oh, timing market has been, fit. Yeah. I mean, literally three days before we launched on Kickstarter, Consumer Reports had a cover story that said the case for grass-fed beef. I mean, our timing could not have been any wow. more like fortuitous Um, and, and uh, coming from a business that we spent years working to push that boulder up the hill versus this business where like the boulder has been spiraling down the hill since day one, it's, it it has a lot to do with luck and a lot to do with time. You know, I I would not sit here and say that like, I'm doing this. My approach is like so much better this time, or like we have much better people or anything like that. That's not the case. We hit the market at a perfect time um, and leaned into it. And whether it's Kickstarter or whether it's how we grew via influencers, I mean, we've just been fortunate um, with our timing and with our offering. Um, But anyway, so I, uh, the thing that I focused on and continue to focus on is how do you take that um, individual and you're like, while we're hacking through the jungle, how do I teach them how to drive the bus? Yep. And then as you drive on the bus and you're on a dirt road and then you move to like driving on a super highway, how do you teach them like, hey, uh, super highway's coming up. Things are a little different in the super highway. And so, and then, you know, I like to continue with the analogy that in our case, the bus like basically started flying. Um, <laughs> and we're like, wait, this thing flies too? Like, oh my goodness. <laughs> um, and what I've learned over the past uh, six years of really trying to coach and train people to be able to handle the, the, the growth and to be able to handle the changes and to be able to handle like 
the increased responsibility. Um, what I've learned is that actually very little of it is hard skills. Yep. Like you're not, you don't teach people like, here's how to do Excel modeling and like that'll get you, that'll get you further. It's actually almost, I would say, 90% dealing with your own head trash. Mm-hmm. Dealing with the voice in your head, whatever that voice is, however it shows up, however it beats you down, however it judges you. How do you deal with that? And how do you see how that voice is actually driving your decision-making, the way you treat people, the way you manage people, the way you think about your contribution, et cetera. And so I spent a lot of time just dealing with like trying to get into where are people coming from? What is their approach? And like, how do they, and how does that like mess them up? Um, and, and what can we do to help them understand That's- that and fix that? That's amazing. Um, I have a few questions here because I love it, and I'm just want to scratch in a little deeper to see, if, like, get some examples. Like, I'll, I'll you know, thrust myself into this kind of conversation and sort of, you know, in and say that what one thing I identified, and it's interesting, the pandemic helped highlight this for me. Is sort of when I'm not at my best, it's when I'm not working out. Like for me, in order to get my mind in the right place to be optimally efficient and be a present, be both a present and disciplined uh, professional, but like a present and sort of you know caring and and thoughtful like father and husband, I need to work out. And actually, some it seems counterintuitive for like for some for for some like I'm I'm very much like a doer, you know, get get a lot done. And it seems counterintuitive for me, but I've learned. And, and, and gain some discipline around, well, sometimes I need to just shut off like and go and do so, like for myself, I need to go on a run or I need to go yep. on the bike. And 20 minutes of that, you know, followed by maybe some 10 minutes of stretching and just not, and, and like makes me, you know, puts me at like, gives, gives me my super. And so, you know, that's, and I and imagine some people you work with, it may be, you know, you know, fitness or eating well. And I'm, I'm curious, like, how do you tap into that? Like, how, like, what, is there like an assessment? Like it, for, you know, for, for, um, you know, for a lot of people, I think it's really valuable to have a, a, a you know, a CEO, a, a sort of heart driven leader that's like thinking this way. And I'm just curious, like, how do you put that into to practice? Like, is that, is, is it as simple as like having, you know, health and wellness sort of oriented culture like like just can you give some like more color there yeah so i mean first of all i think that um you're right like the building block of um if you're not showing up well if you're stressed out if you're you know whatever not um mouthing off in meetings not focusing etc i mean i am first and foremost in the camp of um uh are you exercising are you meditating yep how are you eating have you been drinking water? Like yep. as a baseline. Yep. Um, once those are covered, um, there there is still a whole bunch of other things that I think that people um, can and should be addressing. Um, so I'm a big believer in the Enneagram. I don't know if you've heard of that. Oh, I've done it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what's your? Do you know what your type is? You I'm a two. Okay. Great. Yeah. So um, a two shows up in very specific ways, right? Yeah. So. You have your own uh, inner inner head trash around like how you um, you know like how are you perceived at work you have and you have the same racket that plays in your head over and over and over and over and it's it's like pushing a bottle like in water if you take a if you take a soda bottle and you bring it to the bottom of the water it just pops up again and it's like 
you can spend all of your time like working hard to grab that soda bottle and get it to the bottom, but it will never stay at the bottom. And so you're thinking, just continue, you just continue your racket. Once you've solved one piece of your racket, something else starts. Yeah. And so helping people, if I know like what your Enneagram type is or how you're showing up or how you're doing, I can help you a lot more in terms of, um, you know, like what, what can we do, um, yeah. et cetera. I, I I love that. I'm yeah. I'm a I'm a type two, and my subtype is social. Um, and we did I think not too long ago. I actually went through this with with the team I was working with. Um, how how long have you been? So you how long have you been into Enneagram and like you use it? Like, is there a semi regular like annual sort of like Enneagram sort of you know sort of like eval slash kind of collaboration like working sessions with team? Like, how do you how do you sort of use it? Uh, so I've been into Enneagram. Um, so I joined YPO, uh, which is a international organization, young president's organization. I joined that about five years ago or four years ago. And, um, we have a woman who, um, there's a great book called the 15 commitments of conscious leadership written by Diana Chapman and Jim Dedimer. Um, she's really the one that got me turned on to, um, Enneagram. Um, and, uh, yeah, we do, we do do some of it. I would say like, we, we don't yet do enough of like, there's not widespread. Everyone in the organization understands their type and other people's types, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, that's work to like to do. Um, but the, I guess my, the, the main point is, um, what I've learned in trying really hard to, help people to grow so that we don't lose them. So I'm not sitting across from the table from them saying, okay, it's, it's done. Um, is to help them to manage themselves better. Yep. Yep. Um, rather than like, this is what I need from you. Yep. It, it, it rarely has anything to do with that. I love it. I just want to, I'm Mike, your, your leadership approach is, uh, on fleek, as the kids used to say, I don't know if they say that anymore. Um, but it's it's amazing, and I'm 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 very drawn to it and appreciate it. And actually, I don't know if Alexa's listening, but you should get like affiliate points or something for. I just bought uh, 15 commitment uh, commitments of conscious leadership. What a beautiful age we live in. One click, boom, that book's on the way. Um, I, I I I'm curious, like what you know, what sort of um, where does this come like where where does this drive for you come from like is it something that's always been inside you to kind of look within because it's so interesting like to hear you say like i want to help people just focus on themselves and and, and it's interesting because like I, there's a certain point in my life and then early on in my career where like it seemed like caring about dealing with my head trash the words that you put like i, I don't usually use that verbiage. I think I, maybe I start, I will, cause it, it makes a lot of sense dealing with my own head trash and focusing on things in my own self-interest. Like the word selfish comes to mind and it's like, Oh, you're being selfish, right? It's like, you need to think about the team and you need to think about what you can do to help do this. And early on in my career, I struggled a lot with like, I'm like, I'm dealing with stuff in my own head and I know I can bring a lot and I'm just, and I, I'm trying to figure this out. And, it, and it's really interesting that you're basically saying, and tell me if, if I'm right in saying this, you're basically saying like you're helping people kind of focus more on what's in their self-interest because when you focus more on what's in your self-interest, then you're able to like be a badass, you know, 
in the directions where you interact with people at the workplace, in your household, et cetera. Is that like a fair like way to, to put it? Because I, because I think that that's like a big take, that's certainly a big takeaway for me. And I think so, especially for younger people, we have a lot of younger people that listen to the podcast. Like, and I, and I'm always telling young people I mentor, like as an entrepreneur in residence at Endicott college, like, you guys are badasses and don't, you know, and, and the biggest hurdles you're going to face in life are going to be the doubts in your own heads. And I feel like we're kind of in a similar mindset here where we're talk, like, where it's just the, the most that you can help people just like make decisions that are in their self-interest or be a bit, it's, and it's, it's okay to be selfish. It's okay to do what's good for you. It's okay to go on that run. It's okay to tell someone that now's not the right time because you need to do something for yourself because ultimately that's going to help you get your mind fit so that you can do anything right you can and you can unlock your superpowers so i would preface this by saying that like i i mean we've 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 built a great company um we've done it our own way uh but timing luck etc has played a huge part so i don't know how well my approach is working it seems to be working but i mean jury's still out on whether my approach is working um I, uh, I think it was in a Reed Hoffman book, uh, the LinkedIn founder, um, mm-hmm. talks about like this contract between employee and, um, an employer. And, um, I definitely like, this is my, this is my jam. And the idea is that my job, my job as CEO, and I tell people this in the company and like any chance to get, I tell people this, my job is to make sure that when somebody comes into the company, I want them to leave whenever they leave. And since we're trying to build for the long term, I mean, for like, uh, if we build for 100 years, that means everyone's going to leave someday. I want them to leave um, saying that was the best career decision I ever made. And ideally, that was great for my personal life, my personal life as well. And that's it. That's my job. So my job is to basically help you to do that. So does like, does making you feel bad because you're not showing up on a Saturday because you want to like, you know, whatever, have a life or you, you want to leave at 3 PM because you want to go coach your kid's soccer game or whatever. Like, does any of that matter in the context of like, you want people to be like, Oh my goodness, that was the best job I ever had. No. Um, and I look how much I grew and look how much I was pushed and challenged. No, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's, that's it. What I realized after my experience with custom made, is um, it's really hard and really traumatic to sit across the table from people and let them go. But if I can do that or have them leave, that's the other thing. And, you know, I, I'd say this openly to my company. Uh, my father abandoned me when I was a kid. So I definitely have like abandonment syndrome. Like mm-hmm. I'm worried that people are going to leave. But if I can be like, if they leave or if we part ways, if I can look at myself in the mirror and say, or look them in the eye and be like, yes, we executed on helping you to measurably move your career forward while you were here, my job is done. And if that means they leave in six months or six years or 16 years, like it, do- it doesn't really matter. People come and go. That's like, that's the reality. Everyone is going to leave someday if you're building a company for the long term. And so it's really like, how can you have a mark on their life while they're here? And so if you believe that, like this idea of them being selfish, like of course they're going to be selfish. They should be selfish. It's okay. their life. Like, Hell yeah. That's just, yeah. I, that's, that's great. That's, that's um, what you just said there may be what we cut and put at the top of the podcast as the teaser of what's to come because that was, that was some poetry right there, Mike. 
and I, and I do want to, and I do want to double click on the, um, you know, your, you know, your, we don't have to talk a lot about your father abandoning you, but I want to just talk about like, you know, you were born in Paraguay and you were raised yeah. in Western Mass and your mom was, you know, you had three other siblings. I'm curious where you fell in the pecking order and, you know, brothers, sisters and, and all that. But what, what was, so how long were you in Paraguay? What, you know, what brought, what brought you to Western Mass? Like paint the picture of that upbringing a bit. Yeah, sure. So, um, uh, I guess um, taking a step back, my mother is half Colombian and half um, like New England farm girl. Um, and so her parents, my, my grandfather, it's like, you know, worked his way from the foothills of Bogota um, to a farm school in Albany, New York, met um, my grandmother, um, shotgun wedding, had my mother. Um, he didn't speak any English. He didn't speak any Spanish. It's kind of like one of, one of those stories. Oh, wow. And, um, so my grandfather, um, then started doing business in South America. And so my mom and her siblings moved down to South America. So she spent a few years in New Jersey, New York, and then, um, spent a lot of her upbringing in South America. So she lived in Uruguay. Um, and she met my father in Uruguay. So he's Uruguayan. Um, and, uh, they got married and, um, moved to Paraguay mm -hmm. and that's where I was born. So, um, I'm the youngest of four. Uh, I have two brothers and a sister and, um, we were all living in Paraguay. I was born. Um, and when I was five months old, my parents got divorced and my mother moved up to really like the only stable family that mm -hmm. she had, which was her grandparents, my grandmother's parents who were the farmers mm -hmm. in Western Mass. Mm -hmm. um, and so we grew up in like, you know, we grew up as Paraguayans in Paraguayans slash Uruguayans slash Colombians in uh, like farmland in Western Mass. What, um, what city in Western Mass were you in? So it's a really small town called Williamsburg, which is yep. near Northampton. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, so we... Um, Did so you I play soccer? There. You guys play soccer? I play soccer. Yeah, no, I guess the, we play soccer. That's South American blood. I wasn't sure. Those are oh, good, yeah. Those are some good stuff. Colombia, Uruguay. Like, I that's didn't, true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was just curious. I'm a soccer guy. Good, uh, <laughs> I've got some good soccer blood in me, for sure. Um, <laughs> so... Um, and then my mother like proceeded to not speak Spanish to us to like really want us to be, you know, uh, Americanized. So I, I grew up with this really interesting background of yeah. um, knowing that I was South American, you know, we'd go, we'd go visit my grandparents, um, but not really like, and then being, you know, uh, looking white and being around uh, it being in a really small farm community. It was um, interesting background. Uh, yeah. And, uh, so basically my father like never came to visit. Um, I, he did twice when I was growing up. Um, and so I was always the kid that thought my you know daddy was coming home. He never did. Um, and that definitely has left a, uh, you know, part of my racket is like, I can never be satisfied with what I've done. Mm -hmm. And if you go deep enough, it's basically, I mean, I don't want to bring down the audience, but like, mm -hmm. If you go deep enough, it's basically because like my father never loved me. Yep. And if you think about it from his perspective, like why would he? He knew he was getting divorced. Like, what are you going to attach yourself to this baby? 
Yeah. But like as an infant to not to, to, to like have a father who has not connected with you, um, basically that racket, I just turned 40, that yeah. racket continues. And it's like, at what point will you just take a step back and be proud of what you've done? Yeah, it's uh, tough. <laughs> well, it's tough because now you're a father, right? You have two daughters. Yep. And so then you three. go through the love, sorry, three daughters. Uh, yeah. So two, is it? Oh yeah. Cause right. You have twins. So two yeah. twins are four and a half and then you have a six and a half year old. Um, yep. now you have, you see, it's, it, I think it's tougher to also accept that decision when you yes. now felt the love for a one day old, a one month old, never yes. mind a five month old. Right. Like that's, that's, you know, I, without getting into my own shit, like that's the stuff I think about when I'm like, Oh, I'm a parent now. And interest, like it's 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 interesting. Like you 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 now hold your father who abandoned you to a higher standard because you've experienced being a parent, and you're like, wait a second, the love I feel for you know my kids, like is such that how could how like who could do that? You know, so it's sort of it, it creates these layers of um, pain. I'm sure, which we don't have to go into, but I, I just want you to know, like that's I appreciate the honesty and the vulnerability that you're sharing, and that's it's probably hasn't been easier um, becoming a, a parent because it's probably just kind of you know, heightened the, um, the disconnect that's there. And, and I, I actually, um, so I was like working with a coach and yeah, he threw out like, Hey, you should uh, write a letter to your father. Right. So I wrote a letter and basically I, um, I took his perspective yeah. And I was like, oh, this makes all the sense in the world. Because if my family left right now, or actually my oldest brother was eight when, like if my wife left with my kids, what choice would I have? Like I would turn my back too, I think. Like, and, and took them to a different country. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's so much pain to deal with mm-hmm. that. I, so I wrote this letter being like, I understand, like I get it. I, I actually get it. You're protecting your heart. I feel bad for you. You didn't have a relationship with me, but I get it. Mm-hmm. And this weird, weird series of events. Um, his mother died, so my grandmother died. I hadn't been in touch with him for years. He reached out to let me know. Like that the day I the day I finished the letter, he reached out to me to let me know, like, hey, she passed away. If you ever want to talk. And I was like, Oh, let's talk now. Yeah. And we got on the phone and I basically read him the letter and I forgave him. I was like, I want you to know that you're forgiven. Like mm. I'm good. Um, and then he died. Two weeks later. Oh, geez. <laughs> well, that's, 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 I'm sorry to hear that, but also that's beautiful that you got oh, that my opportunity. Goodness. How, how fitting, how fortuitous. Right. Again. <laughs> she was like, oh, okay. Um, wow. Yeah. It's like the universe inspired. The universe providing to, um, a clearing. <laughs> yep. Thank you, universe. Um, quite, quite amazing. Yeah. So, um, and, and and I guess what caused, you know, what helped me to understand it is really thinking about what that would, what kind of, how traumatic that would be for me. And, right. you know, I'd like to think I'd be better, do better than he did, but like, you yeah. know, I could see, I can see where he was in self-preservation mode and needed to do something. Yeah. So. You, you, your ability to practice empathy is not lost on me and I'm sure not lost on the audience. I think that's a, wonderfully mature way to look at it. And, and thanks to looking at it that way, you were prepared. There's also something there too. That's like a startup lesson where it's like people always say like prepare for success, right? You know, like you make your luck. It's like you, you were 
you worked with that coach, you prepared yourself, you had written that letter. And then as luck would have it, your father reaches out to you and you were prepared for the conversation. You had a letter to read him. There was no like you fumbling over your words, not knowing what to say. Like you had a plan, right? And isn't that like so much of success in life is the sort of thinking into the future and, 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 and oftentimes like thinking through the difficult challenges that face you and just putting a plan in place. Like, and you put a nice, nice words to paper and what you wanted to say to your, your father and boom. You got that opportunity. When you got that opportunity, you were able to seize it and get that beautiful clearing that um, that you did. Yeah, that that reminds me, and then we can move on. Yeah, move yeah. on to um, you know the, the business if, yeah. if you want to. Yeah, keep, yeah, keep rolling on this. But um, reminds me when you were saying that about preparing yourself for success. Um, one of the things that's been really challenging, both for me as well as um, people in our company, and we saw this. Uh, really bad in during COVID. So during COVID, as lots of you go on LinkedIn and people are being laid off and people are like losing, you know, losing their jobs, being laid off, closing their businesses, our company was like flourishing because obviously we ship meat in the mail and people couldn't find meat. And so they're just in droves coming to us. And so we shut off marketing. We did all this stuff and just like just right. tons of people came in. And so what happens, not, not just that, just in day to day when you are successful is the voices in your head actually get louder. And so there's a great book called The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks that talks about like literally saying to yourself, you know, it goes through kind of like lottery winners and people who have had just huge success early, athletes, et cetera. Um, and a lot of them fall apart. Mm. And some of that has to do with like, you know, society has, has kind of taught us or lied to us that um, uh, making a big, being successful, having money is like, that's it, you know, and people get there and they're miserable. Right. And a lot of what, a lot of the practice is to like help yourself be okay with where you are and also to, you know, to, to be like, okay, this is great. You know, what's next? Like the Gay Hendricks talks about a, um, it's basically like a thermostat and for whatever your upbringing, your DNA, et cetera, tells you that you are only um, allowed to feel happiness up to a thermostat of whatever, 71 degrees. Maybe I'm 73 and you're 71. So when you hit 71, what happens is you start to self-sabotage because you, you do not believe that you're worth more than that. And so the practice is to help yourself to grow, to be like, no, actually I'm worth 73. And then sitting at that for a while. No, actually, I could I could be at seventy five. Yep. And if you don't do that, you start to have these weird things that happen of self sabotage. Mm-hmm. So his book talks about like when people get sick or like they stub their toe or break their toe or like fall down. It's really um, it's uh, he calls it up leveling, but it's your it's basically your body saying I'm not comfortable with the level of joy that is happening right now. So you need to do you need to like help me to reach a new, you know, like help, help me to realize that I deserve more or I, I, I can achieve more. Yeah, no, that's um, great. It's actually, um, it's interesting that specific verbiage too, like self-sabotage, like that's some of the, um, there's a self-sabotage in the workplace book that I've, I've read a couple of times that it's like, and I've, I've gained this, this mindset from working with some, some helpers and some like coaches over the years of like, basically with the with the end result being like you know 
you almost feel, and, and this is, comes from a bit of my own upbringing, just like blue collar, like not really under, you know, not necessarily seeing a lot of people that were worked in business, like my whole life and having a bit of almost imposter syndrome, like when I started to find success in business and, and just the ability to like, you know, be a bit more confident and not like, and cause from a place of doubt, you make mistakes and, and it can lead to self-sabotage and like the, and basically like, I'll say to friends sometimes, it's like, oh, it's like, oh, your career's going well. It's like, yeah, I just, I just, I just can't fuck it up. You know, like, it's like, like only I can, only I can, like, literally that's like, only I can fuck it up. Like, it's at the point where, like, I have a good career. Like, I'm, like, there's the only way this doesn't go well for the rest of my life is if I screw it up. And it's like, that's both true, but also weird. Cause it's like, oh, I'm acknowledging like my own vulnerability, knowing that like, I'm, so, you know, like sometimes fragile and dealing with, you know, my own, mental trash um yeah so, so it's interesting but, but specifically from just working with with some some great pros one of them was a the guy who actually ran me through the enneagram stuff like um re, like reading about self-sabotage and self-sabotage in the workplace and just like knowing like triggers and kind of like just being more mindful of it has helped you know is 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 helping me i'll say it's in the act of helping me <laughs> yeah um, appreciate I, I yeah go ahead <laughs> I, I think that you, you w- when one says like, you're like, oh, that's, you know, congratulations. That's really amazing. And you're like, yeah, I think that might mess up. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Don't congratulate me. Um, that is, um, that's just an indicator of like needing, you, you know, like being, being okay with where you are and not having some racket that doesn't let you be um, joyful with where and you content. are. Yeah, it's like yeah. you know a big piece of it. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, um, and I'm an Enneagram Seven, so like okay, that's I was gonna my, ask. That's my yeah. thing. My thing okay. is like I am not. Um, I'm, I'm I'm I I have a hard time being okay with um, where I am. Mm-hmm. I liken it to like I don't know if you've ever gone bar hopping in New York City, but oh, yeah. whenever I used to go to New York City and hang out with my friends, it's like they get to the bar and their phones are out trying to figure out the next place. And it's like, we, we, just, we just got here. Like, wait. yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm with you on that. And actually, I mean, t- maybe type two and type sevens unite on, on bar hopping principle one-on-one. It's like, why do we even need our phones? We have everyone we need here. Let's just, let's just be, let's be in the moment. Actually, one of the best, one of the cooler uh, answers I got, and maybe we'll get to this at the end. Like, I, I mean, it's, I asked, um, I like to ask people like, Oh, like what's, what's the biggest thing about the world you'd like to see change? And um, I'm actually meeting with her later today. She's become a really good friend. So Deirdre Sartorelli, she's the assistant uh, dean of entrepreneurship at, uh, the Angles, at, at the Angle Center for Entrepreneurship at Endicott College. And, I, and at the end of our podcast discussion, I said to Deirdre, like, what would you change about the world? You know, if you could change one thing. And she's like, Listen, like it's 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 a fun question because like obviously you can you can say climate change and you can say all sorts of you know things that you know a lot of people you know can and and easily you know you know should say. She's like, you know what I would change? I would change presence, like the presence of people, like and people just being more present with each other. And I was like, hell yeah, like hell yeah, like I love that. Um, because I think beauty lies in sort of like these conversations, like you and I are present right now. Like it, I could tell like you're, you're not distracted. I'm not distracted. We're right here. We're locked in. We're having like a special moment. Like 
having a conversation for the first time and becoming new friends. Like that happens from being in a, in a place of presence. And, you know, it's something that worries me as a father of a four-year-old, right? Four in July, you know, I don't want him to grow up too fast, almost four. And I don't, I, like it's, you know, these, you know, the, the digital age we live in, I imagine you, you face those challenges. And I think we can segue into work stuff because I want to talk about ButcherBox and how you've now set it up as a B Corp and all that and like, and, and a few other things. Um, but I'm just curious, like, uh, you know, as we segue over, back to work. Um, just, I'm sure you can relate to that a bit, but I think the, the pre, you know, presence is huge and you're a very present human. I really appreciate and I'm grateful for that today. But I'm just curious how, like, uh, you know, how you, and you're a mindful leader and you lead, you're, you know, you're, you lead with your heart. Um, how do you do that in your household with, with, uh, with three, yeah. young chil- three young children that you're trying to raise yeah. in a digital age where attention is, uh, constantly in a million directions and, and sort of it's, yeah. it's, it's difficult to sort of, um, it's challenging to help our, our children be, you know, be, be present in one specific sort of, you know, real, you know, IRL sort of conversation. Yeah. I mean, so we're a, like a screen free household. We don't have a TV. Um, I mean, Every once in a while, they might like watch Daniel Tiger, but like they're not, um, they don't watch movies, they don't like, um, uh, we spend a lot of time outside. Um, you know, we go into the forest multiple times a week, uh, and that really is where they, you know, they they come alive, they play, they teach me to slow down. Um, but I was laughing because I mean, it, I, I we just celebrated father's day and um yeah. you know i i i said to the girls that like i feel like i'm not nearly as patient as i would like to be mm-hmm. um, so i am by no means um a fully present uh father who's totally patient and able to you know like by no means um uh it, it has been great COVID has been really good for my family. We, we closed our office uh, right when COVID started and have not been back. And so um, that was really great. I mean, it was really great for us to uh, have all this time together and to be able to spend, I've just spent a lot of time with my kids. Um, uh, a wise man once told me kids spell love T-I-M-E. Um, and so <laughs> it's really about putting in, you know, putting in the time. Yeah. yeah putting your phone away. Yep. Yeah. Well said. Well, and, and that's actually, as we're, as we're segueing, I, I have to build off of that with, with just a brief touch on hustle culture. Like I can't stand it. It sounds like you can't either. Um, we talked like in the, in the pre podcast, um, Q and a, like I asked you the question, biggest lesson you took away from building custom made. And you said, you know, hustle culture is a lie. And then you went on. Um, can you explain why? Like, and, and just share with listeners like, you know, the, you know what, what to be cautious of when you see like, the, you know, the Gary V's of the world that are out there blowing hard about hustle culture um, and just, you know, what, what you've learned and, 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 and how your approach sort of differs, uh, especially now with, with ButcherBox. Yeah, sure. So um, I think that there are lots of lies that um, uh, entrepreneurs or potential entrepreneurs are told. One of which is that um, in order to succeed as a company, you need to be willing to sacrifice everything. You know, work seven days a week. Oh, I work 100 hours a week. Um, you know, 
uh, I need to sacrifice my health, my family, like, um, that that's just not true. Um, and what I know about, um, entrepreneurs, the best entrepreneurs I know, like, um, the best ones, um, they start with lifestyle design. What kind of lifestyle do you want to have? Mm -hmm. Now, if you want to be like, uh, you know, I don't know, super famous and like invited to all these different, uh, speeches and parties and whatnot, like, okay, start with that. But if you want to have, uh, if you want to be done at five and be able to like hang out with your kids and you want Mm -hmm. your weekends off and you want Mm -hmm. whatever you start with that and then you build, what kind of business can you build on top of that? Yep. And so I oftentimes talk to people who are looking to start a company or who are in a company and there's this kind of just totally false belief that like, Oh, well, um, I can't start a company because I can't really put in the time required. It's like, where, where are you getting that from? Like you can, you, in many cases, when you're doing your own thing, you actually can spend less time because it's your own thing. Um, and so I, I you know, there, the big lies that I've seen in entrepreneurship, one is like, Hey, you need to, you need to be 24, four, seven, and sacrifice everything. The other is that you have to raise outside capital. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you look at most uh, tech, uh, if you look at like TechCrunch or you look at um, most tech blogs, tweets, et cetera, um, most, most of it is about fundraising stories. Yep. Either selling the company, raising money or going public. That's pretty much it. And by the way, that's because it's really easy to get that information if you, you know, scan the SEC site. And so it's really easy to write these articles about yep. these companies that are raising money because it's like, it's half baked for you. Already. It's formulaic. Yeah. You just plug and play. Yep. Totally. And so if you were like, and this happened to us in our first company, you know, we raised money because we were like, wow, everyone's raising money. We should raise money. Like, I bet we could raise money if they're raising money. And so you, you believe that you need to raise money. And we built ButcherBox with no money. Now I, I want to, you know, acknowledge that um, I had the credit worthiness to be able to get a credit card. Um, that you know I, in in many ways, have been privileged in like my kind of my upbringing. I saved money at, at a very early age, um, so I was like more prepared than the average person for um, starting something with nothing. But you know, there's this lie about like, oh, you have to raise venture capital. And like, that's the only way to be successful. And by the way, that if you raise venture capital, you're successful, which is a whole other lie. Um, and so, you know, with ButcherBox, um, this year, so we celebrated our five-year birthday and we've built this, you know, very large company uh, with no outside capital and really are at the intersection of a lot of trends, um, whether it's hey, I think animals should be raised better, farmers should be paid more, the environment is in trouble. Um, How do we use, how do we change the way that meat is raised to to help that? Um, That's really what we're here to do. Like that is a long-term goal. Like that is not something that you just snap your fingers and fix in two years. The amount of systemic problems that exist in um, agriculture I mean, basically since the 1950s, 
it's been um, about efficiency, about food safety, to the detriment of the animal, the farmer, and the environment. If we want to change that, that's not like, okay, let's let's change that this year. It's like, it doesn't work that way. I mean, everything has to be changed. And really, it, it takes a like an approach that's like, yeah, that, that might take seven years to do. And it's like, okay, well, if it takes seven years, it takes seven years. I mean, might as well start now though, right? And so we as a company have taken like where we are, our growth kind of where, where our brand stands for, where we are today. And because we haven't raised outside capital, um, because we're like in this unique position, we are saying to ourselves, wow, it really looks like we might be the ones to help solve this problem. Yeah. And like, so really like what I had at my heart when I wanted to start this company to help bring claim space and grass fed to the masses, I would not be able to do what I really wanted to do if I had gone to raise money. Not to mention in 2015, when I started this company, when Blue Apron was doing really well and there were a whole bunch of like Blue Apron lookalikes out there, mm-hmm. we would have been in real trouble. I don't think we'd be around anymore because we would have raised a bunch of money. We'd dump it into Facebook, hope for the best and keep spending, crank up CPAs, not figure out how to do anything efficiently. Um, and we just wouldn't, we wouldn't have made it. Um, and what we had to do from day one is build a profitable business. And so, you know, that's just a different, it's a different operating philosophy. Um, and I think that, you know, we got very lucky with timing, which we talked about. Yeah. Um, and I think this, this idea, this chip I had in my shoulder, like I'm not raising money, um, is probably the best decision that I, um, made, um, because it's really set us apart and put us in a very unique position for, uh, where we want to go to. Yeah. Like, and, and, and so build off of that, the, the unique one from that unique position, it's afforded you the opportunity to become a B Corp. And so yep. talk, talk more about you know, sort of the how and, and, and why for you've, you decided to uh, establish ButcherBox yeah. as a B Corp. So B Corp for your audience who might not know is um, uh, basically a third party certification on um, how you as a company are uh, handling or treating a whole host of different um, things, um, including your workers, the environment, um, social good, diversity, uh, et cetera. There's like 400 questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and a couple things about like why we did it and what we think is important about it. So first of all, it gives you a score. So every three years you recertify, you get a score and then it's like, okay, how would we improve this score going forward? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it gives, um, if, if you want like, Hey, improving the world to be part of the mission, it gives you an actual scorecard of like, how are we doing? What, what are we going to do over the next three years? Okay, great. Um, you know, uh, and that, that was really attractive. I would say the most attractive thing about the B Corp was the language that we had to, um, put into our corporate documents. Um, so when you are an officer of a corporation, uh, any type of enterprise with shareholders, in which case we, we have not raised money, but, um, every employee owns a piece of the company. So I have what's called a fiduciary duty to my shareholders. 
And what that means is I am supposed to make decisions based on shareholder value and increasing shareholder value, mm-hmm. the legal responsibility. You can go to jail. Um, I, I mean, in, in extreme cases, you can go to jail. It's a legal responsibility that I have to uphold the shareholders at all times and makes decisions based on the shareholders. Now, when you become a B Corp, you can add in, which we did, into the corporate documents that you are not just making decisions based on the shareholders. You are also making decisions based on improving the environment and um, social welfare and like the world in general. Mm-hmm. That you don't only look at the lens of shareholders. Now, the reason why I thought that was important is like I'm really on this kick of um, how would we build how, like how would we build for a hundred year hold? Right. So if we said this business is going to be around for a hundred years, what does that mean? For one, it means that I'm no longer here. And so part of like my, um, my thing is like, okay, if I'm not here, I definitely want something written in so that the next person who, you know, takes the seat, hopefully they've learned from me and it was a, you know, orderly transition and it wasn't just like I got hit by a bus and now somebody else is in, but like, uh, those, those people, um, I want them to kind of see what we had uh, what I had wanted and to deliver on that mm-hmm. and to have a score. And, um, you know, and then I guess third, um, all of our, um, our entire system, all of the animals that we work with um, are, um, have some sort of third party humane certification. And what that means is that um, a third party comes and audits the farm to see the farm, the processing facility, the transportation to the processing facility, et cetera, to see that or to ensure that they are treating the animals with the utmost of care and respect. Um, and that's a lot. That's a, that's a, it's important to us. It's important to our members. Um, but it's, it, it's a high bar for the, for the farmer. Yeah. Um, and so if the farmer is doing that, we should do something too. Right. Right. So the, Does that our change? third party verification is equal. And sorry to sorry to interject there um, or jump on you there, but but the uh, question I have is: Has it shifted some of the personnel that you or or existing personnel needing new training, or have you or as you're growing your business, are you adding personnel that are more savvy in terms of like environment, um, sustainability, et cetera? Like, is there like how does that impact your operation? Um. So, uh, just to be clear, we, um, we don't own our own farms, but I think you mean like, do you have people in the, yeah, in the company it, who in the company, like as liaisons, like how, like, is, yeah, just how is your, your internal knowledge, you know, do you feel like you have adequate internal knowledge at this point? Or is it just something that you're like, you just invest in as a, as a group, you know, to, to understand like how to improve those points. So every three years, your B Corp certification comes up. And you know, like you're doing work, you know, in those three years, um, like do you have a, do you have a squad at, at Butcher Box that's kind of responsible for like, you know, like, I don't know, is it like quarterly, you know, B Corp, like check-ins, like how are we doing on our B Corp, you know, score improvement, et cetera. Like, I'm just, yep. I'm just curious operationally, like how you, how you manage against it. Yeah. So we tapped, um, a, a woman named Evidney who is, um, now our VP of, uh, environmental and social responsibility. Cool. Um, and so when, before we went B Corp, we brought, 
when she'd been at the company for a few years, that was like where her heart was anyway. So before we um, got the certification, we put her in that seat. That's so great. that's her, that's really her number. Nice. Um, and she has several committees. There's kind of an environmental one that is starting. Um, she has a couple of people who help her on environmental stuff. Um, and then uh, there's a diversity, equity, and inclusion committee. Um, you know, she's working on work and welfare stuff, which is a fascinating topic. Um, and actually on our website, if you go to our like about page, um, you can, we, we actually created the annual report um, for our giving um, kind of like what we're doing, what our stance on stuff. And um, that's a pretty interesting read, but nice. we, yeah, we're, we're really, I mean, meat is, um, there are a lot of issues with meat. The way meat is raised in this country, there are a lot of issues. We are setting out to change that. In order to do that, I think that we need to um, really be open um, and really, you know, put our put our time and effort where our mouth is. Like, how, what are we doing to fix the problem? Um, and so, part of that is having somebody full time focused on um, fixing the problem. It's great you had someone that that's where their heart was, and you being a heart leader, how how fitting you could kind of they naturally evolved into this into the into that role which is which is great i'm i'm curious with regards to the issues meat has generally speaking and and overwhelmingly speaking i guess we could even say in in the u.s in particular uh, but certainly globally like speak to that a little bit and then speak like I, i'm curious a few things one like just top line like what are some of the top issues that if people don't know they should know about sort of how most um meat is sort of procured in the US. Um two, what inning are we in? And you know, it's a nine inning game. What inning are we in with regards to like improving upon those problems? And then number three, like what's how does relate that kind of the butcher boxes roadmap, if you will? Like what are some of the things that you're kind of plotting out from a you know product standpoint um in the next year, couple of years as we sort of evolve through the, that nine inning game? Yeah. So, um, meat, uh, really since the 1950s went in a direction of wanting to provide cheap meat, cheap and safe. Mm -hmm. Those are like the two main, like that is what the meat industry has marched to. And that's consumer driven. Like the consumer wants cheap meat. So that's what the industry is providing. Um, and now, relatively safe. And, re- and, and safe, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Food, food safety has is yeah. a huge component of meat that like most people don't really think about, but it's a huge piece of like what, what how meat is processed and thought about in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the cheapest way to um, raise animals was or is to um, utilize confined um, feeding operations whether that's a feedlot for cows or whether that's a, you know, um, chicken house for chickens or um, really small uh, cages for pigs. Um, these are these confined feeding operations. Um, the conditions are horrendous. Um, and they don't honor, I mean, we, we, we talk about like, you've got, you've got a few things in this wheel. So there's um, the farmer, the animal, the environment, and the workers. Okay, so those are the four things that like kind of need to be thought about. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, and all of that is like, if we can make that better, the end product is better and healthier for the customer, we think. Um, mm-hmm. So on the, um, you know, and so confined feeding operation uh, essentially generally takes uh, grains and puts them into animal um, really cheaply. Grains are subsidized uh, and they, um, animals, um, you know, basically uh, lots of, they create lots of protein and it's cheap. Yeah. Um, uh, I would say right now there's definitely, so the, the COVID and the pandemic caused consumers to two things happened during the pandemic, well, maybe three things happened during the pandemic. Um, consumers, one, there were a lot of plants that were shutting down or people were dying at the plants. Um, and that became a news story. So people knew that like, wow, these, these processing facilities are, um, not great work they have issues. Have a lot of rights. Yeah. Yeah. Um, second, people as they're eating more at home, um, people started looking for product that was like a little bit healthier and better. Um, like there was a flight to healthier product. Um and uh third, um I I I mean I think it's a whole host of, of things, but people are definitely keen on climate change, the environment, yeah. and yep. meat meets potential impact on that. Yep. Um, and so, you know, our stance is yes, like meat is bad. Um, we're trying to fix it. Uh, we don't believe that people are going to move to a plant-based diet. Um, and really the plant-based solutions out there are essentially the same grains just being processed in a different format and fed to uh, consumers. Um, so the, the, if you believe that meat is here to stay, which we do, then it's about making it as good as possible. Right. Honoring the animal, honoring the farmer, paying the farmer a living wage, uh, paying the workers and suppliers um, a living wage as well, making sure their conditions are safe. And we believe that certainly with grass-fed beef, we believe that the way in which our approach to raising animals, which is pasture-raised or eating out on grass, um, is better for the environment. Now, one of the challenges is what's happened is as the customers have gotten interested in this stuff, um, most companies have responded by just putting up a green leaf and like calling things regenerative mm. and regenerative doesn't mean anything. Like right. what it's supposed to mean is that the animals eat the, eat the, um, grass, uh, and then they poop out and then they stomp it in and they fertilize it. And over time that, uh, the grasslands, um, the grass gets healthier and the roots grow and that sucks in carbon and it becomes a carbon sink. And that's like the story, right? But that's not proven. Like nobody's actually scientifically proven any of that. Um, and so uh, what we believe is if you're in this for the long term, going to your question about like, what do we, what do, we do in the short term or the long term? I would say we're probably in about the third inning. Um, if you're in it for the long term, it's like, I believe that the government needs to get involved to help grass-fed beef become a thing. And so yeah. we are actually writing to the government right now. We're talking to senators. We're trying to get the USDA to do a study on how could we make grass-fed viable in this country. Um, because to, to me, from where, I, from where I look, grass-fed beef, pasture-raised grass-fed beef helps to check a lot of the boxes that the industry is like looking to check right now. Um, and uh, 
I want to help. I, I want to help uh, us get there, the industry to get there. Yeah. Is the idea there? That's great. Is the idea, I'm curious, like with that sort of, sort of legislative request to the federal government, is it, is it asking, what's the, what's the ask? Is it similar to like, a you know, study. The great, the great. Okay. So the, the ask is the study. And I'm just curious, longer term, could another ask be, you know, grain, grains are subsidized and, you know, animals are, you know, gorged of grains because of the financial, you know, benefit to offer like low cost uh-huh. meat. Like is, so is part of it leading to like, okay, upon confirming, you know, much of what we, you know, kind of already know about grass fed, um, then creating subsidies to ensure the um, affordability and, and I don't know. It, it, okay, you're not sure, but that, that it's not crazy to think that that would be because because it, it sort of still then becomes like a pricing challenge, right? Like create you know procuring this at the right price for the masses that works for like you know more of the average sort of common citizen. Yeah, so I have my hunches. Um, so one of the things that I think is the most backwards is um, basically every cow starts out the same. Six months cow-calf, like cow and its mother. Right. And then somebody buys it and they hold it for a year. Um, and then uh, and it, it just eats grass. Every cow, same way. And then um, they generally sell uh, at 18 months. So they held it for a year. At 18 months, they sell to a feedlot that then finishes it for four to six months on grain. Um, that farmer, at least the ones I've talked to, would be happy to keep their animal eating grass. Like they'd be happy to keep that, that cow eating grass on mm-hmm. their land mm-hmm. and not sell it to a feedlot, but their loan is due. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so they can't even make the decision of like, you know, for example, right now, corn is way up, which means that the feedlots are paying a lot less for their animal. They can't even make the decision of like, hey, I'm just going to keep my cow eating grass because I don't want to sell it to a feedlot um, because they have to because their loans are due. Yeah. And so like even at that level, that fundamental level is like, what if the government just, um, you know, uh, backed, you know, and the banks are like, well, we want our money back quickly. It's like, what if the government... Um, much like a Sally May or much like yeah. something else where her backstop for like, that would be, I, I think could be transformational um, and very easy to do. Not that right. we're not, we're not asking for much. Um, I don't know. The reality is like, I'm not the right person to say here are the three things that is, is needed. And really we think like, it's really like understanding that this is a, this is a need and then helping. Yeah. Basically doing a study. Now, if yeah. the government doesn't do a study, like they're like, no, we don't want to do that because we're, you know, either too propped up by um, the industry or whatever. That's fine too. Like, we're not going to stop. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep funding our own stuff. We're we're using some of the dollars that we allocate towards philanthropy to move forward on projects to look at um, rangeland and, and carbon sequestration and what's actually happening. Can we get scientific outcomes? We're, you know, talking to farmers, we're trying to figure out like, how does, how do we make this work? Now we, you know, we have this on our website and we've, we've talked about it. Um, so we've been in business for about six years. When we started, we were fully domestic. Um, and when we realized how broken the domestic system was, meaning like you couldn't get high quality, they weren't necessarily treating the animals 
the way that like we we thought they should be. Um, we moved uh, the majority of our purchasing to Australia. So mm. we buy the majority of our stuff from Australia and New Zealand just because that market or that, um, that way of raising animals is just way, way better and more mature than mm-hmm. um, the U.S. Mm-hmm. We're now about 20% domestic. We want to be 100% domestic. Um, but like the, the, industry ha- like the, the industry has to change in order for that to happen. Um, and so the reason why we're pushing it is we believe that domestic raised grass fed beef can be a thing in the United States. Um, we don't need to be the only player. We're totally happy to help change the industry and have other people participate. Like we're not looking to like corner the market, but, um, you know, even at our, at our size and scale, the domestic market cannot support, uh, what we're trying to do. Um, and so we need to build it from scratch. Um, and by the way, going to my other point on like, you know, having a hundred year view, like that is not a problem that will be solved in three years, five years. Right. right. That's it's a long, not, I mean, that's a long term. That's view. a 20 year problem. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, like a, that's like a 20, you know, 2040, 2050 goal. Right. Uh, yeah. And, but I've gone from like, wow, it's really cool. You know, I always wanted to run a big company and now running a big company and that's great awesome and i've 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 gotten to the point where i'm like when i started it was like oh let me just pump this up and sell it um or like well first it was the hobby then it was like oh this is growing i should sell yeah. um and now i'm kind of in a place of like this could be my life's work yeah like changing the way animals are raised in this country in a big way and and building a brand that stands for that like yep. that is what we are doing. Ultimately, we don't like butcherbox.com is our current only way to get you a product that hopefully will not be the case going forward. We want to be in retail. We want to be in food service. Like we, we we're, we're trying to build a brand. Um, one that, you know, when you eat it, that we have obsessed over every single detail to make sure that is the highest quality honoring the animal, the environment, the farmer. Um, and that's what I believe is the opportunity here. Yeah, that's great. The, um, I think with all that said, especially in the last few minutes here, like, I, I, I think I almost know the answer to this question I'm going to ask and that like, I think the focus really can, ins- it's a big enough of a focus and, I'll, and, I'll, and you have to take a long view on just focus on meat. But early on in our conversation, you just, you did allude to like some issues with like, even like wild caught fish. And then obviously like in the pre podcast questionnaire, like I asked a question about sort of like, um, sort of these like faux meat substitutes, like I was alluding to like, yep. you know, you know, impossible beyond, et cetera. And I understand some of the the issues there that you alluded to, but I'm just curious, like from a product standpoint and, and maybe in may, and they're in two different camps, like more, you know, veggie options versus like fish, but like, are, are they in your roadmap either or, um, at all? And, and if, and if yes or no, why? Yeah, uh, so, yeah. So, um, um, we, uh, have looked at the plant-based, um, options out there, uh, and the fully plant-based options out there. And what we don't like about them is they're not clean label. Um, our customer is looking for clean label in addition to claims. 
Mm -hmm. So when we launch a product, like we make sure it has minimal ingredients, it has no nitrates, no, like we, we just go to an extreme of like making sure it's clean. Yeah. Um, the products out there, if you look at the, the back of it, it's like you can't even pronounce things. It, imp um, the impossible one is particularly unclean. Yeah, yes. So um, <laughs> um, I, I, mean, I, I think I, that I studied, the, I've studied the labels. Yeah. The, the, yeah. I think that, yeah, I think that the impossible and beyond ones are just like maybe the best known. And, but I would put, I would pull, throw them in different buckets and that like, I think it, it's tough for me to, the, the, there's, there's not as good a health fact, like the, the health, there's a lot of health question marks too, just on what you're getting and the sodium yes. levels you're getting on impossible in particular. Um, but, I, but I'm completely with you. I, I completely, I completely get that. So your, your, your customers um, so, are looking for like clean, pure label. Yeah. So we've looked at, we've looked at a mushroom based one. That's pretty good. It's like a fermented mushroom based thing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there, there are things coming out that like, I would, you know, we, we have lots of members who have a vegetarian person in their house who they would love to, you right. know, buy veggie burgers and be able to serve them to their kids like that, or their, you know, the adult or whatever. Um, I think like what we are doing more of right now and more research into really more trying to um, product development is um, blended. Yeah. Um, I think the market is bigger for 50-50, um, mm -hmm. meaning like you know, there's like these mushroom burgers that are 50% mushroom, 50% burger, 50% um, vegetables and 50% burger. Um, and what's then the what you're doing is the benefit there health, like, what do you, which is it more the health benefit or is it a cost benefit? Like what's like the top benefit or two to the blend? Well, uh, for some people, um, some people with kids are trying to like hide vegetables. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So it's a really good way to hide vegetables. Got it. Um, uh, for other people, um, you know, it, it's basically, if, if somebody, rather than eating a burger, is eating a blended burger, they're eating half the meat, right? Yep. And so, like, if you think about that over lots and lots of servings, you're basically taking out a big bunch of, a, a bunch of meat demand, mm -hmm. um, which I think is one thing that we could um, and will do to help reduce meat consumption. Yep. I am very interested on kind of on the out, on the out, like the, the further down the path um, roadmap, I'm very interested in cell-based. I think it's fascinating. Um, and so cell-based is you take some cells from a animal, um, you use like electricity and some sort of food, and six days later, you put it in like a brewer vat, and six days later, like meat comes out. Yeah. Um, really fascinating space, and one that we like absolutely you know, want to work on and partner with and be a part of because, I mean, ultimately we're trying to be a brand that competes against the butcher. And if you could find cell-based meat at the butcher, like you should be able to find a butcher box. And in many ways, we'd be able to help jumpstart that industry. So we're very, um, that's one that I think is like really, really interesting. Um, and certainly on our, on our roadmap, you know, a lot of our uh, people, um, actually come to us either after eating a vegetarian diet or they've decided to clean up their diet and are probably eating less meat. Mm -hmm. And we think that's a good thing. Like yeah. that's okay. We're, we're not, 
asking people to eat 16 ounce steaks anymore. Like, yeah, people have been eating too much is, meat for, for since the mid 20th century. So yeah, like this is a moderation helps with moderation. Yeah. And our, yeah. our belief is like, if you're going to eat meat, if you don't want to eat meat, that's cool. Um, mm-hmm. We actually are aligned in our philosophy, which is we need to improve it. Um, and if you're going to eat meat, um, consider ButcherBox because uh, you know you're you're kind of guaranteed to get the best best possible quality animal raised the right way, farmer treated the right way, environment treated the right way, etc. Yeah, great. That's great. Um, I'm I'm like we're, as we're running up against time, I'm like we're gonna have to soon catch up i i'm looking forward to getting together with people in, in, in person finally starting to starting to do that it'd be wonderful to, to, to chat more mike i'm really really appreciated all the candor uh during this conversation i'm curious you mentioned butcher boxes offices have been closed rightfully like during the entire pandemic are you opening up anytime soon like like how are things look are you going kind of in the hybrid work direction you still figuring it out How's the summer? Uh, so yeah, no, we want to have an office again. We're um, we're going to have a temporary sublease this summer and a real office um, probably Q two of next year. Nice. Uh, so we're starting the build out process on that, and um, yeah, we're excited to get back to work um, uh, in person. Um, I do think it's you know it's a whole topic for a whole other day, but I do think the um, uh, hybrid work is going to be a real challenge. Um, and one that we're kind of happy we're not going first. So some companies are going back now and figuring out all the kinks and we're happy to let people figure that out because it's, it's going to be tough. Um, yeah. From an office location standpoint, have you rethought like location, like where were you before and where will you be now? Like, is that played in at all? Is it, is, is, you know, it's Boston still is a pretty central location. If you have staff, you know, Metro West, North Shore, South Shore, like, is that, is that, is that not changed much for you? Uh, we basically had 30% of our staff, um, just leave, um, either leave or we hired them, uh, elsewhere. So we have now we have a fairly scattered workforce and mm-hmm. we're not going to have them come back. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and we have an office in Peabody, so we do have a lot of people on the North shore. Um, and then we, um, yeah, we, you yeah. know, the standard Metro West, Somerville, Cambridge. Let me know we're at the Peabody office. I'm in Beverly. So. Okay. Not even a skip. Just Will a do. hop away. Just a hop away. Will do. Um, awesome, Mike. Appreciate appreciate all the time. And is it is there anything else? Like any parting words? And actually, and I'll I'll if you have additional parting words, please share them. But I do want to ask you last thing. Like we talked about this question, I like to ask earlier. Like what's outside of what we've discussed on today's call? Like what is the biggest challenge in the world that you'd like to see solved, and and, and why? And outside, and I'm going to challenge you to kind of step outside of like the way meat is raised and consumed, and how that has to change. Oh, that's that's not big enough. <laughs> that is now. huge, but just I'm just More. curious. Like you're you're a meta thinker, so I'm just curious. Like what else? What else in in the world would you love to see? You know, change or not necessarily solve. But like what what would you like to see addressed? If you could just start a business right now and solve another big meaty meaty problem, pun intended, uh, what would it be? Well, that's a, those are two different, those are two different questions. Uh, starting a business to solve a problem versus like a problem problem. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is like interesting in terms of raising animals and, you know, treating them better and raising things differently, et cetera, um, which is also, also happens to be part of our request for the government 
um, you go to these farms and it's like, ah, oh, we're fourth generation family farmer. It's like, okay, cool. Um, what happened four generations ago? Uh, and usually what happened four generations ago is the land was taken, uh, usually from a indigenous tribe that was on the land beforehand. Mm. And so if you go out to like Oklahoma or you go out to the South, um, that's a big, big, big part of, of um, the story, the history of farmland in this country. And I don't know how, like, that would be solved, but it does tug at my heart that the very places that, that are, like, the best suited to raise animals in a regenerative way on the land, like, that was happening hundreds of years ago before the white men came and took it. And I... I, I I think we will play a part. I think the government can play a part, but I just, I, I think that there's a kind of a, the, if, if we're believing that animals should get back to the land and kind of live in harmony the way they used to, there's a bigger question around the land itself. And uh, I would just love to work on that and see that kind of get resolved. I love that. Maybe that becomes part of the charter for like the, that evolving list of variables involved in the point system for your kind of B Corp certification. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yep. Awesome. Mike, this has been a pleasure, man. Thanks for, uh, thanks for taking all the time. Really, really appreciate it and excited to share this with the community. Yeah. Thank you. This is a lot of fun. Awesome. You, you take care. You too. All right, brother. Bye. Bye. Cheers, Boston.